And uh, I wondered as we started this semester uh, how far we would get in Acts, and we're going to get like halfway through Acts. Because <laughs> there's just so much stuff. And again, the, and I've said this before, I love this format, guys. The fact we have 90 minutes and we can go as fast or slow as we want to, and, and we're not trying to meet a curriculum thing, a worldwide curriculum. We can go as fast or slow as we want. Uh, I still think, uh, if you guys are all right with this, I still we're gonna we're gonna take this next couple of weeks. We're gonna kind of finish what we've been doing in Acts. Then we're gonna take the winter break, the the Christmas break, and then when we come back, I would really like to jump back into the Old Testament, and we're probably gonna do like Elijah, Elisha, and then uh, we're gonna be doing uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Uh, really kind of spend, be able to spend some time and dig into that stuff that we didn't get a chance to finish like a year and a half ago. So, that will be fun. But that said, as we're going along here, yeah, why don't you hit the one right here? Perfect. All right. I want to start by going to Acts 15. Now, the thing that makes this uh, so much fun, I think, is as we've been talking about, we're, we're, we're looking at the beginnings of a church. And you're looking at the beginnings of the church trying to move forward against an incredible amount of opposition coming towards it. And again, with a knowledge of our history, this ought to be ringing very true as we're, as we're looking at this because we've seen this before. Now, the battle here, though... Uh, lies in this one. Uh, certain men which came down from Judea and taught the brethren said, except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. So here's the problem. We're now going out to the, to the uh, Gentiles and this is the battle. You're going to have to live the law of Moses and be circumcised in order to be saved. In other words, these, these people were seeing Christianity as a branch of Judaism. This one little because you got the zealots and the Pharisees and stuff like that. And now we have the Christians, so we're going to live the law of Moses, and by the way, and then you accept Christ. So you do all the performances of Moses, and then you're going to come over here and be baptized as well. Okay? Now, let me ask you something. For the for the Jews who are struggling with this and they're going to and they're watching what they're watching uh, uh, Paul and Barnabas and Peter begin to teach gentiles and the stories start coming about Cornelius uh, accepting the gospel and having the holy ghost and they had their own little pentecostal experience that, oh my gosh for the Jews what's the problem why are they having such a hard time letting this one go what is the big deal about having to hold on to the circumcision First of all, it's lineage. Why? Because if you're circumcised, what does that mean? You're part of the covenant. You're part of the covenant. And if you're not circumcised, you're not. You're unclean. So immediately what that's setting up is, so who are, who are the circumcised? Chosen people, right? It's about it's about pride in our lineage. And if you're not circumcised, 
You're not part of the lineage and you're not. You're not just unclean. You're not chosen. There's the problem. We're chosen, you're not. So what do we say to Gentiles who are uncircumcised but baptized? Are they chosen? They're adopted. Well, we know they're adopted in. That's right. That's right. That's where we're going to go. But if you're a Jew living at that time who has accepted Christ, do I accept them or not? They're unclean. I'm not supposed to go in their house. How much of this is habit and tradition? And culture. But not just culture. What happens if you are a Jew living in Jerusalem and you're not and you are going in a Gentile's house? Or you aren't living the, the cleanliness laws? Are you not going to the synagogue? Is that a, could that be a, a, a punishment by death? Could that be a death sentence to not live the law of Moses? If not officially, at least unofficially, where you may get stoned. Because remember, Paul kept getting attacked because he wasn't doing this stuff. So part of it is a sense of we are chosen, they are not, and we're having to give up the idea of being chosen. Who is chosen? Whoever the Lord designates is chosen. Okay, And they had a hard time with that one. And then the other problem here is straight up tradition. It's just about tradition. We're used to doing this. This is the way we do things. Okay. Yeah. How do we know? Great, great point. Sometimes we get caught up in the sim. We can't. We have a hard time. I think. I think that's a struggle that some, a lot of people have when they go to the temple for the first time. They're having a hard time t- separating out what is the symbol from the symbolized. That the fact that here's one of those a little controversies that shows up. Well, aren't there some of what we do in the temple? Isn't that some of the same things that the Masons do? Yes, it is. But we get, and Joseph utilized some of those symbols to symbolize gospel principles. And because those symbols are the same, people go, well, wait a minute, it's the symbol. No, it, it, was, it, it could have been a lot of things, but it was meant to symbolize, and what does it teach us? And, and we just get caught up in what we're doing as opposed to what it teaches us. Yeah? I think I mentioned a few years ago. Got all ready to do it and everything, and he was looking 
says, she's part of the covenant. Both of her parents are Jewish, so she's a Mormon Jewish convert, and that was quite a process. And then the grandmothers, the two grandmothers, my wife got to say a little prayer. That's all sure. Right. And, and I mean, I couldn't read all of the. It was quite ceremonial. <laughs> wow. That's very cool. All right, so so keep keep these things in mind because here comes the discussion. Kevin, yeah. Could you also put in the word culture for tradition? Yes. Because we've had a lot of things in our religious culture that. Hold on to that. Okay. Hold on to that. We're going there. Okay. It's like keep the thought there. When I point, go. Okay. All right. Okay. The apostles and elders come together and consider this matter. And after, when there had been much disputing, Peter rose and said, Men and brethren, uh, ye know it's been a good while since God made a choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the gospel. And God knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, gave them the Holy Ghost. And, and look at verse 9. And put no difference between us and them. Oh, we're the, no, we're the chosen people. Don't you get it? You know, and wait a minute, now they're chosen too. What does chosen mean and how do you become chosen? Eh? Uh, put no difference between us and them. And then, and then I love this phrase. And this is the one. Get ready now. And now therefore why tempt ye God? To put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. Why are you going to put a yoke on the new disciples that are coming in? Okay, go. Tell me about the culture. Okay. 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 I, I do it right. I don't mess it up. <laughs> no pressure. Okay, so, so some of the things that we have in the church now are, yes. are cultural. Yes. Done. Yes. And when things are changed, you know, procedures or somebody comes in and they say, okay, we got to do this different. Now because this is happening or people go crazy. Like a three hour block of time. Oh, that was awful. We've never done that before. The budget, yeah. We used to pay budget all the time. Okay, so let me take that. And let me let me roll this to, to present day. Do we as a people sometimes put a yoke on new members as they're coming in that even we had a hard time bearing? Like what? Tithing. Like tithing. Well, is that, is that, that, that's a tough one. But I'm thinking more because I, I want to separate for just a second a little bit. The commandments, that when, if somebody's going to join the church, we accept and keep the commandments. But are we a little bit sometimes like Pharisees in the fact that we add stuff to the commandments and that becomes the yoke? They were expected to be baptized back then. But now we're going to say, but it turns out that the law of circumcision was a law of Moses thing that was fulfilled in Christ and is no longer required of people that are going to join the church. They do have to be baptized. So, make the jump. To us as members, are there things, there are commandments, but there are, are, do we yoke sometimes things onto new members that, we're, that the Lord intended not for them to be yoked with? Yeah. Yeah. And right after she was baptized, um, the high priest, the group leader came to me and he said, now we want her to start going to the temple and doing her work. 
Now, now the concept is is that for new members, mm-hmm. th- there's no question that getting them to the temple, the, the fast we're able to go and use them with the spirit of Elijah. I, I get that, but can that become a yoke? Oh yes. Yeah, if we're forcing, we're pushing things that maybe they they're not quite ready for conceptually. I think it's a perfect example. Yeah. Well, um, I have a friend at work. Actually, I didn't even know him. He just walked up to me and said, "I want to go to church with the Mormons." kind of like that, and he knew somebody that was. When he came to church, well, even before, um, I was I was thinking, where do you live? Uh, do you want to make sure we're going to the right ward? Oh, yeah, that's that right. Oh, a big mistake. Um, and then some of the ward members was doing the same thing, and he was, he, he was kind of standoffish, like, well, you know, he's not coming back. Uh, uh, you know, there could be other things, because he seems like... To push the ward boundaries before they were ready to. Yeah. Ah, okay. I like that. Okay. Hey, I have a question. Yeah. So the men were supposed to show their faithfulness through being circumcised. Yeah. Hopefully, when they were able. Yes. But I know where this is going. <laughs> what about the women? Okay. You've been talking to my wife. <laughs> Yeah, there was that question that came up about circumcision, that the men were required to do the circumcision, but the women weren't. Okay, there wasn't, didn't seem to be an equal kind of thing. Uh, the circumcision is a, is a mark of lineage, that it's going to descend from the fathers. Now, the womb of the, of the, the wife is where that seed is placed. Okay, now that could come, that could go, come from almost anywhere, technically. But, it, but you're trying to designate that the, the seed is coming, is passing from the circumcision without trying to get too graphic and gross. Okay. Let me throw one more yoke out there that I think happens. Um, Stephen Robinson, uh, who wrote uh, Believing Christ. Um, there is no heavier yoke than the demand for perfection. The curse of the law. That many of the saints still struggle under its load. Is there, for, for the, those that are struggling in our midst, do we sometimes place a yoke on them of perfectionism? Do we sometimes place that first yoke on us for perfectionism? Yeah. That's why I We, we struggle because there's this battle saying, what are we going to do with this sense of we got, we've got to be perfect. We've got to do it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the good news is the cru- that in Christ we are set free of that crushing burden. He bore that particular burden for us and His perfect performance extended and applied to us and frees us from a similar requirement at this time. Okay? Now, let me ask you, when, when a new member comes in to join the church and starts looking around at all of you, are they feeling the yoke? Oh, yes. Do you think a new member, uh, I mean, we just went through the whole rounds of uh, uh, the primary program, right? And I got to go to two of them yesterday and, 
you know, and here, there's my grandkids, and we wait for that moment when they go, I love my mommy and daddy, and I can follow Jesus. Great. And everybody goes, oh, yeah, they did. Okay. But for those newer members that are watching, their kids get up and stand at a pulpit and just say their little line. Is that a big deal? Yes. My kids could never do that. And it's, it's one, and and they're saying, but I. So these people have taught these, their their families how to do it, and they're going to get up and say, our family, like my uh, my little grandson yesterday, um, my family prays together at morning and night, and, and before we go on trips. <laughs> okay, what if you're a new member sitting there with kids, and you're going, our family does, and doesn't even get close to that. Does that feel like a yoke? I feel like a burden. How I will never be them. I can I can't mm-hmm. get to that stage. Yeah. Well, and what about those maybe long time members, but single mothers, single yeah, single parents, um, parents with you know non member spouses, children yeah. whose parents haven't been sealed in the temple. All these all these circumstances that they're they're very active good members. I last last night with the uh, with the uh, snow and stuff like that. I got to make a fun trip to uh, Weatherford and back oh, uh, to to speak to a, a small fireside uh, in Weatherford. Uh, that and that chapel's way out there. <laughs> Another side of Weatherford. It's out there. Beautiful chapel. Um, replaces the one that burned down, but that's another story. Um, but that was really our conversation last night to that singles group. Last night we talked talked about the weeping God and that there's a God that weeps on the other side watching these struggles with them. And a lot of nodding heads and a lot of sense that we don't necessarily always fit in. We don't, we're not part of. It doesn't look like we match up. We're not as good as. And that ends up being a yoke. And it's not just a yoke in terms of sometimes it's how they feel about themselves, but sometimes it's about the way that they've sometimes been made to feel uh, as people aren't quite sure what to say to a newly divorced person, for instance. Okay? Um, those can be yokes. And we have to be so careful about how we respond to one another when, it, when the people don't already feel like they're not chosen. We're not because somebody gets up and fast testimony me and say, "I'm so grateful for my husband. I've been married to him for 45 years, and I've got you know 150 grandkids." And 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 and, 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 and so on the other side, somebody's going, "Well, I guess I didn't get blessed. Mm-hmm. I have this yoke of something. God didn't come through for me, and He seemed to come through for them. Well, that's hard. Yeah." Yes. In fact, he will say, if you're going to bring me on, I'm going to carry, I will place a yoke on you. But he describes that yoke, right? But in this case, we will see that yoke as a heavier responsibility. But he says, if you really recognize what my yoke is, my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. So there are yokes that we have placed on people that may be a yoke of bondage. And he says, what I'm trying to switch it to is, take not as the world give I a yoke unto you, kind of thing. 
But as the way I would do it, this yoke is going to be easy and that burden will almost be light. Even though it is a yoke. So what we should be doing with people is just encouraging them to have a better relationship with the Savior so they can feel that lift and and they can stand on their own with the Savior. Yeah, she said that we're going to encourage them to, to be like the Savior. What we're going to talk about in just a second, we're going to get to Paul standing at Mars Hill. And he's going to start to describe our relationship with God to people that aren't that didn't understand that. And that makes a difference on the yoke. What they're going to feel. Okay? Alright. So Stephen Robinson. In the Gospel Covenant we exchange the burden of sin. Oh wait. Is sin a burden? Sin is supposed to be fun, isn't it? Sin is supposed to be, you know, we're going to go out and have a great time, and and that's true happiness. And if you know, if I leave the church, you know, I get a ten percent raise and Sundays off. Okay, wow, that would be so much fun. But but it turns out that sin is a burden. Is sin a yoke? Yeah, and in fact, remember in the Book of Mormon how, how uh, it describes Satan as wrapping us in flaxen cords that mm-hmm. grow to become the chains of hell. But at first, it feels like it's fun and everything, but it becomes uh, a burden. The burden of sin for the obligation to love him and each other and to do the very best we can. Uh, so, so back back to this idea then of uh, with with these that are, are joining the church. Uh, I just think we have to be so careful with them that we're not placing burdens on them that are uh, uh, too heavy to bear. Now I know. Oh, I want to do that. I don't think I mentioned this last week, but I, I was so touched. Uh, we, we had a... Um, i tell you about our, the prayer that we had in our sacrament meeting last week. Ah. No. We, have, we have this wonderful gentleman in our, in our ward. He's, he's uh, six foot eight, former basketball player. Um, uh, lost, lost some finger, parts of fingers in, fro- in a frostbite experience on a glacier in, in Iceland. There's quite a story there with this guy. Lost his whole basketball career as a result of that. Anyway, but he, uh, he's joined the church and, and, uh, in our ward in the last year. And, and he got up and he gave one of the most beautiful prayers I've ever heard in sacrament meeting. Uh, and it was, he just got up and he said, uh, let us pray, his own tradition, let us pray. And then he just said, thank you, Jesus, for all that we've been given. Thank you for all that, or thank you, Father, uh, for everything that your son has given us. And, and, and we, we love you and we're grateful for you and you've blessed our lives and, and we need you in our lives. And it just kind of went, in Jesus' name, amen. He sat down and I just went, oh, <laughs> wish I could capture that thing. And it was the simplicity. Now, if... if I don't know if somebody might be sitting there going, yes, but he didn't use thee and thou. And he didn't, you know, and he didn't. You got this simplicity and this beauty, and is it the way that we would do it? Is it according to our tradition? Not necessarily. He also gave a war hoop when we confirmed him a member of the church. 
<laughs> As he's walking up the aisle, it's kind of a. Yeah! <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Do we normally see those kind of? No, that's not our tradition. That's great. You know, but it was it was that beauty and exuberance and this wonderful heart of this great guy. Love him to death. Um, all right. So anyway. Uh, therefore, why you tempt God to put a uh, yoke on the neck of the disciples? We believe that through the grace of Jesus Christ they shall be saved, even as we, even though they have not been living the the cleanliness laws and they're not circumcised. Well, that's a that's a big major jump for these guys. But there it is. Okay. Now that said, then now I want to go. I, I want to go backwards just a little bit. And to to, uh, some of the preachings of Paul. Now, part of why I think this becomes important, we have have the opportunity with Paul, uh, by by any measure of any estimation, in the history of Christianity, was there a more effective, uh, more productive missionary that the church has ever sent out than the Apostle Paul? You know, when you look at the amount of churches where he established them, the fact that he saved Christianity by moving the headquarters from Jerusalem to Rome before Jerusalem fell, uh, uh, he is just like the greatest example to me of missionary work and effort and effectiveness. So wouldn't it make a little sense if we understood how he preached and, and we looked at his how he, how he did the thing to maybe we might learn something about teaching the gospel to other people. Okay. Well, here's, here's his... If you go through and you watch... We have in, the, in these chapters, we got a couple of experiences where you watch Paul preach. And you watch him preach to non-believers and believers, but there's a pattern that he's going he's gonna to follow. Here's how it works. Number one, start where they are. Number one, he will begin where people are. Their circumstances, where they are, what they believe, what they understand. Start where they are. Okay? Number two, you're going to watch him share Christ. Number three... He's going to teach those that are ready. Sometimes in the sharing of Christ, he says, my word is like a two-edged sword. It will divide. And it's going to become very obvious who is ready to hear the gospel and who is not. And it isn't a matter of having to do an awful lot of uh, mourning over those that aren't ready yet because they're just not ready yet. But you're going to preach Christ and that will divide and you will see who you're going to focus your efforts on. Does that make sense? Okay. Personalize it. In the in the uh, in the sales world, when they're trying to teach people to be good salespeople, that one of the phrases that that anybody needs to understand, if you're going to try and sell the features of something, somewhere you have to get to the point that says, "And what this means to you is, you know, do I really care that it's got?" That this car has low jack and all kinds of stuff. What that means to you is if someone steals your car, they're going to find it. Oh, okay. 
What this means to you. So we're talking about the gospel sense. It is, I'm going to preach Christ, but let me explain what this means to you. Wow, this changes your life and how that affects. Okay? And then finally, witnesses. It's the bearing witness. It's the, here's what I believe. Here's what I saw. Here are people that believe. Here's what they saw. Back it up. Okay? Now, with that said, now let's place this template and watch him do it. Okay, let's go back to Acts 13. Okay. So they're going to come to Antioch. They go into a synagogue. It's Sabbath day and he sat down. After reading the law, the prophets uh, and the prophets, the rulers uh, of the synagogue sent them saying, Amen. If any have any word of exhortation from the people, say on. Anybody have any words to say on this? You know, you imagine Paul just kind of waiting for his moment. I may have a word or say to do. I can say, let me say something. Okay. Go ahead, Paul. Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand, <laughs> these, little, these little pieces of information that were just given, uh, said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God. Now, men of Israel meaning circumcised Jews. And men who fear God, who would that be? People that are believers, but maybe not necessarily circumcised Jews. That are there listening. Because there were, there, this was a lot. When you get outside of Israel, there were people that were maybe studying about Judaism, maybe thinking about converting. Uh, and they were, so they were those that believed. But he's got two groups here. Men of Israel and those that fear God. Okay? Now listen to it. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers. What's he saying? He's grouping them all. He's grouping, and, and who else is he grouping them with? Himself. I'm not just an interloper showing up here. I'm part of you. I'm also a man of Israel. Even though I'm a Roman citizen by way of my dad, I'm also a zealot Jew by tradition, Pharisee. Men of the, and this is our father, so we're going to talk about our history. Then he's going to give him a little history lesson, Okay. Uh, the God of our fathers chose our father exalted the people when they dwelled as strangers in the land of Egypt with a high arm brought them out uh, 18 about the time of 40 years suffered he their manners in the wilderness I like that phrase he put up with them for 40 years and their bad manners uh, and then he's going to say alright uh, 20 that's all oh. then he gave them judges for 450 years until Samuel the prophet and afterwards they desired a king and God gave them Saul the son of Sis a man of the tribe of Benjamin by the space of 40 years so they had they were given judges you remember and then you remember how Israel clamored for a king yeah okay well then they got Saul um and when he had removed him, he raised them up, David, to be their king. 
because they wanted a king. Now, and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Um, now, incidentally, the, let me just mention again, sometimes we look at, at David and we go, we, and I mentioned King David, what do we remember? Well, he fell. Bathsheba. This is all after that. Where he's saying, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to point out David as an example of a righteous man who was forgiven. I found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart which shall fulfill my will. And then he's going to say, of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior. What word could have used there instead of Savior? A king. Look at what he's doing. He said, remember how they came out of Egypt and for 450 years they were given righteous judges and then what did Israel want? A king. So he gave him Saul, he gave him David and now he's given you Jesus. The next king. Because you wanted a king. Here's your king. Directly out of the lineage of David and it is Christ the Lord. The Messiah. It is Jesus. Because you wanted a king. Here he is. That's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant the way for he did it. For a Roman to be pointing it out. And for a Roman to be pointing Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And John preached and everything. Now... Now he's going to personalize. So he's going to preach Christ. Now, let me personalize it. What does this mean to you? Well, men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, circumcised, and whosoever among you feareth God, those of you who are studying, both of you, to you the word of this, to you is the word of this salvation sin. He is talking to you. This is a message to you. Now, they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, they didn't know him. Uh, they desired from Pilate he should be slain. So they took and put him on a tree and laid him in a sepulcher. <coughs> but, God hath raised him from the dead, and he was seen many days of them which came from Galilee to wit, here's the witnesses, to who are his witnesses unto the people. Okay? Now, he's going to throw in a little something extra, and this was something that when I read this, I had never seen this before. And it's one of those aha moments, sit up in bed and say, Cindy, wake up, you got to hear this. This is really cool. Okay? Because he's going to make a statement here, and if you know your church history, this ought to sound familiar. And we declare unto you glad tidings how the promise was made unto the fathers. God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children. Where did we hear that in the church history? God hath made a promise to the fathers. When Moroni appears to Joseph, what does he say to him? Turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. 
Verse 2, He shall plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers and the heart of the children shall turn to the fathers. Does that sound familiar? When we, t- when we look at that and we say, what promises were made to the fathers? And we're going to plant those promises then in the children. In normal parlance, in the church, what do we think that means? Genealogy, right? And the temple blessings. We'll do the work. Go back here for a second. And we declare unto you how the promise was made unto the fathers. Think about it. Who's the father we're talking about here? It's a little heavy. Stay with me. Who's the father? Is Abraham. What promise was made to Abraham? Through his seed, all the earth would be blessed. Through, okay, through the seed of Abraham, all the earth would be blessed. How? What's the promise that was made to Abraham? Okay, that he had in the seat when we get that one. That generally we talk about the blessings of Abraham being that, that those that would descend would have land and seed and priesthood. Okay? But we're missing one. And it's the biggest one. And that's the one that jumped out at me. In this context, what is he saying to these Jews that God made a promise to your fathers of what? A Savior. That God would give through the seed of Abraham. How would the the people of the earth be blessed? He would give them through his lineage a Savior. So even if we go back to D&C 2 where he's talking about he's going to plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the Father. What promises? I will give you a Savior. There will be a Savior born. And that promise needs to be planted in the hearts of the children. It's just, I I, I love this. And in fact, um, and I put it in here, I don't know if, if this is making sense, but I put the verse from Genesis right between verses 31 and 32 in Acts. Because in Genesis, here's what the Lord is even going to say right after the almost sacrifice of Isaac. And he's going to say to Abraham, By myself I have sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, all and being willing to sacrifice your son, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son. And then what he, here's what he's saying. I will not spare my son as you were willing to not spare yours. That's what he's saying. That's the promise of Abraham. Because you were willing to sacrifice your son, I am too. And I, and I give you a promise that one day I will sacrifice my son. And through your lineage, and it will bless all the, the peoples of the earth. And that promise needs to be placed in the hearts of the children. Does that make sense? That, that, that's pretty amazing what Paul is trying to say. And so what he's trying to say to these Jews, they're sitting in a synagogue, and he's saying... Abraham was promised that a Savior would come through his line. And I'm trying to plant that heart in your, as as the children of Abraham, that you're supposed to have a Savior. And it would come through Abrahamic lineage. That's 
Jehovah kind of with divine investiture speaking in the name of the Father and probably was. Well, yes, I thank you. Because <laughs> you're right, most of the time it was Abraham conversing with Jehovah who is the God of this earth. But this is divine investiture. This is the Son speaking to the Father. On, on my scriptures when I want. <laughs> okay. But, but I, yes, it's like my version. Um, but, but what I really want to do, I tried to take it and put it in different words. And that's basically what he's saying. Uh, because thou hast done this thing and that's not withheld thy son. What he's saying is, I will not spare my son as you were willing to not spare yours. I'm glad you pointed it out like it. If you're going to try and find that in Genesis, you're going to have a hard time. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, and then, incidentally, uh, oh, let me just throw this in. Uh, uh, the, the, Paul, Paul then apparently had a little hutzpah to him. Because he threw this little... This little barb out there is a great, to me, it's a great insult. You know, because the next day the Jews aren't interested. They're filled with envy, and he's going to end up teaching the Gentiles because they're going to be interested, and the Jews aren't. And so, Paul and Barnabas, 46, Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said to them, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been, been spoken to you, Jews, but seeing as you put it from you, and judge yourself unworthy of everlasting life. No. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Is that great? And since you decided oh. in casting us out that you're not worthy of everlasting life, we'll go teach the Gentiles. <laughs> uh, don't you want to meet Paul after this life? Okay. Uh, so anyway, uh, ultimately they have a lot of success here. And 52, the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Ghost. Okay, now, in the time that we have remaining, I want to, I want to jump ahead. Um, so we're, we're, we're going to hop ahead because I want to have you see one more uh, discourse from Paul. Watching him follow the steps of how to teach. And he's going to teach in a number of places. He's going to be stoned and raised from the dead and go preach the next day. You know, he's just kind of this ever-ready bunny. They just can't kill this guy. Okay? And I want to jump ahead to what I think is one of the great little mini-sermons in all of the scriptures. Uh, he's going to get to Athens. And in Athens, Athens is going to be surrounded by uh, 
people that are philosophers and they're trying to teach all the time. And we get this great moment on Mars Hill. That I think that little speech at Mars Hill, and it's only a series of little verses. Uh, and I think, by the way, I think I've got a picture here of Mars Hill. Well, here's, here's the, uh, the, the, the monument to the unknown God that, that Paul will see, and we'll refer to that in just a second. Yeah, let's look at that. Okay. So let's, I want to go to verse 16. So he's going to be taken. Now when Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was stirred in him. Uh, be careful of Paul when his spirit is stirred. Because uh, he's because he's going to go on a, a roll here. When he saw the city wholly given to idolatry, which is funny, who were they worshiping in Athens? Who were the ancient Greeks worshiping? Planets like Mars, Jupiter, uh, Athena, Thor. In other words, what they did is they just they were just pulling in gods from all over the place. They, on, on one side, you get them; they were very were, were the they're the Stoics, and it's the Stoics that are actually going to in verse eighteen. Certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics. Who are the Stoics? If someone is Stoic, what are they like? No emotion. Why? Because emotion is bad. It's weakness. In other words, what they're saying is, if you feel the spirit, that's just emotion. Because it's all about logic. And logic trumps emotion every time. There are a lot of people these days that believe that. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, if you're ever feeling the spirit, it's just a flashing in your amygdala, in your brain. And it really can't be the spirit because it's just emotion. And emotion is wrong because it's all about science and logic. Right. Okay? Ever hear that one? Yes. Okay? There's nothing new here. These guys were doing it back then. Okay? Certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered Paul and said, What will this babbler say? We've heard about him. He seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods in a city dedicated to Mars and Jupiter and Thor. <laughs> and Zeus. Yeah, this is a strange God we're hearing. Really? Okay, on the scale of strangeness, that's amazing. Okay. Um, and they took him and brought him to Areopagus. Can we pronounce speak Greek? Sounds good to me. Areopagus? Okay. Which is the other name for Mars Hill. Have been to Mars Hill? Where is Mars? Okay, a couple of you. Yeah, not very big, is it? Where is it? Big piece of rock, yeah. And apparently they had some kind of council up there. The buildings aren't there anymore, but it's it's still there. You can go hang out at Mars Hill. Yeah, and so it's within range of all of those kind of things. Okay, so they're going to haul him up here. 
They took him and brought him there, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. Tell us, uh, tell us about what you're going to teach us. Now, for, for thou bringest certain strange things to our ears, and we would know, therefore, what these things mean. Okay, now, before we start, rule number one in Paul's missionary guidelines is you always start where they are. Would it make any sense at all to preach to these guys, start, start preaching Christ? No. no. Why? They don't know about it. They're, they're not there yet. Does it make any sense to talk about the atonement to somebody who doesn't believe there was a fall? They've got to understand God and the fall and, and His nature before they're going to understand the need for a Savior. So as opposed to the Jews which had an understanding of these things, he's about to teach a group of Gentiles who are really just kind of uh, deity shopping. <laughs> so rather than start by trying to preach Christ crucified, he needs to start by teaching them about who God is. Does that make sense? Start where they are. Now, and this is Paul. I like And we know that the Athenians and strangers spent to their time and nothing else but to tell or hear do some new thing. So, Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and he said, he looks around and he goes, Ye men of Athens, I perceive in all things that you are too superstitious. What he really meant to say is, if you look at the Greek words behind that, I perceive that you are very religious. You believe in a lot of deities. You're very religious. It's actually a compliment. That's a good way to start out. Yeah. <laughs> you, you guys impress me. Look at all these deities here. Wow, this is really great. Look at this God and this God and this God. I'm impressed at how religious you are. And I think that's a good thing. Okay? That's a good way to start. Okay? The... Uh, your Gentiles, you're not going to hell speech would not work here. <laughs> but if he can start here and just say, man, I perceive that you guys are wanting to learn about gods and you, and you are very religious. For as I passed by, verse 23, and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this description, to the unknown God. And then comes this great phrase. Great phrase. Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship him, declare I unto you. I have a hard time not hearing Hubie Brown, who gave a great talk and then, him who ye ignorantly worship. <laughs> but so this God, this one right here that ye ignorantly worship, this one, let me declare him unto you. Let me teach you who this God is. You think he'd have their attention? Probably. Yeah, because he's starting where they are. This is your God. This is your deity. Because you have an understanding. You understand about Zeus and, and Athena and all those. But this one you don't understand. Let me teach you about this one. Yes. But this is what you're doing with all of these other gods. Yeah, he's going to get there with that. Right, but let me start with this one. Let me start with telling you about this God that you guys have been worshiping. Because you ignorantly worship him. 
You don't you you worship him but you don't know who he is. Yes, they really we believe there's a God out there and we just don't know who it is. And he, he says, "What? Well, yeah, and you don't know him. I'll teach you about him. Let me tell you who he is." Okay? Uh, so to the unknown God. Uh, and then he's going to go on and say this God made the, the world and all things therein, seeing that He is Lord of heaven and earth and dwells not in temples made with hands. Uh, and then He's going to say, He hath made of one blood all nations to dwell on the face of the earth and hath determined the times and appointed and the bounds of their habitations. And then, and then this. And th that they should seek the Lord if they are willing to find Him. Joseph Smith translation. If they are willing to find them, for He is not far from every one of us. This God that ye ignorantly worship is close to you. He's nearby. He's closer than you know. Part of what we're trying to say in Weatherford last night, and he weeps when he watches your struggles. He may not intervene, he may not interfere, he wouldn't ruin your agency, but he weeps when he watches you struggle. Okay. Now I think I've got just I've got some, enough time to do this. Now, what about all these other gods that are there? Now, as a class, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I need you to hang with me for about five minutes. We're gonna drill through about, about three scriptures. Okay, we're gonna do a little scripture chaining here and put it together. You'll be surprised where we end up. Okay. Um, now, because one of the connections here, this unknown God thing, I believe that sometimes as Latter Day Saints, we have a tendency to worship an unknown God. We have a tendency, as I've said before, I think sometimes in, we're new to the church or because of improper preparation or something, we worship gods of our own making. We try to create God in our image rather than Him creating us in His image. We want Him to do what we want Him to do. We worship an unknown God. And one of the things that I find common in those that leave the church that I end up talking to is that they're leaving because they had a misunderstanding of who God is and how He works. And I believe that if we know who God is and we understand who He is, all of the revelations about Joseph Smith and stuff like that would actually kind of pass by us because we understand how God works. Okay? Now, so, so hang with me on this one. This is the unknown God. And I, I've got it connected up here to Romans 1, 21-23. So let's go there for a second. Paul, and again, he's, this is what he's going to be preaching to the Romans, talks about some people because, uh, verse 21, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. They didn't understand who He is. Neither were thankful because of the vein, the vein in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. 
professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Now, do we have anywhere in the scriptures where the Savior is going to help us differentiate between the wise and the foolish? <laughs> that is the parable of the ten virgins, right? All right, let's go there. Because I want you to see something. Because, in other words, even in talking to the ones on Mars Hill and, and even talking to the Romans, he wants you to see the difference between who's wise and who's foolish. So we'll go over to Matthew 25. Now, I have to confess that as I, even when I was, even when we went through Matthew 25 uh, this last winter, there's been, a, for me, there's been a little bit of a mystery that I haven't been able to solve until the last two weeks in the in the this parable. We re- and, and remember this one, okay? It's like the kingdom of heavens, like the ten virgins took their lamps. And it goes to meet the bridegroom. Five were wise, five were foolish. And remember that we talked about those that had their their lamps for serving and though and and their lamps for waiting. They had their oil of waiting and those that did not. Those that didn't didn't have the oil of waiting. When when the bridegroom comes and the party starts, they have to run go get more oil. They didn't bring their oil of waiting. But there's an interesting phrase at the end of this thing, uh, this parable. Midnight comes, there's a cry made, the bridegroom cometh, and they rise and trim their lamps. And then, it's right here at the end. Verse 10. "The, The foolish go out to buy. The bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him, and the door was shut. And afterwards, after they've been out frantically shopping in the middle of the night, Go get oil. They might have to go all the way back home to get the rest of the oil. Um, uh, they were already in with him, and the door was shut. Afterwards came the other virgins, saying, Lord, open to us. Now, there's a lot of things that, the, that the, the Lord, when he opens the door to these that are late to the party, there's a lot of things he could have said, right? He could have said, uh, well... Nobody's admitted after the show starts. He could have said, you don't know me very well, and I don't like people that aren't ready. Or he could have said, we have enough light. Don't worry about it. But he says a curious thing, and it was one of those things that I never put together. This was the mystery for me. Of all the things that the bridegroom could say to the, to the foolish that are showing up late... He says to them, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Now I thought, I don't know you. Well, he hired them. They were supposed to be there to provide light. Why of all the things would he say, I don't know who you are? Well, they were there. They were waiting. In fact, they were there initially when he showed up and they were like, well, we're out of oil and and the others that were ready, they were able to go in. But for him to say, I don't even know who you are was an odd phrase to me. I just, and I've never been able to put it together. I, I, I thought that too. 
But it actually fits. I, I doubt it's one way of looking at it. But it actually fits with what the, what the Savior himself said later, earlier. Because we're about to go to get the key to this to say, I don't know who you are. Where we have to go one, we have to drill one more down, and that is go to the Sermon on the Mount. So now we're going to go to Matthew seven twenty one. And to the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the Savior is going to say, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, let us in, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth my will. Many will say to me in that day. What day? When the party's starting, right? <laughs> we'll say in that day, Wait, haven't we prophesied in thy name? In thy name, cast out devils. In thy name done many grateful work. We're here. We got the oil. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, those that do iniquity. Okay. Now, take that. Now let's back up. Let's go back to... Carol, the ten virgins. What does that tell you about the five foolish? What did he just say? I know you not. Why? I've never known you. Why? They hadn't obeyed him. And, and they would say, but we have oil. And he says, you were workers of iniquity. And I know you did things in my name. They weren't just foolish, they were wicked. And they were deceived. Because I believe that they honestly believed, as they stood there at the door, and here comes, here comes the bridegroom part, that they deserved to be there. They believed that. Otherwise, they wouldn't spend the time to go and get more oil and come back and get, get embarrassed because they can't get in. What he's saying is the, these weren't just foolish, but they were wicked. They were, and so here's the ugly truth. They were never going to get in. Mm. They were deceived. Wow. Pardon me? Right, right, right. You never know. You never knew me. Yeah, and I think that is true also, because I, I, I've always I've always looked at it that way too. It says you never knew me, and I think that is also true, because those who are wicked also don't know the Savior, which now takes us back to the unknown God. That and, and that's why we're doing this whole exercise in the first place, because it, there's a dual process going on here. Not only does do the wicked not know God; he's an unknown God. But God also doesn't isn't going to acknowledge them because they're not like Him. Okay, both both are true. Yeah. Yes. Right. But it's doing 
those things that actually add oil to the lamp. So to me, what you're saying is that these five virgins were never practicing. They weren't mm -mm. ever in the doing or the becoming part of what we're supposed to do. And, and it's great because he identified the difference between what testimony and conversion are two different things. Yes. Testimony is the foundation, and, and that alone is not going to deliver us. It's not going to be enough for us to be where we need to be. It's in the doing and the becoming of these five principles and elements that's really going to put the oil in our mouths and, and bring us to and, and that's why it is that I think this, the, the, the bridegroom or the Savior will look out at those that are standing there and say, I don't know you, meaning I don't recognize you, meaning I don't, you're not like me. Because you haven't become like me. And the, and the sad part for me with those foolish is the fact that to some level they thought they were. Because they're busy going, wait a minute, we did things in your name and we've, we've done all these good things and now you're not letting us in. We thought we were in good shape. And I think for like the guys on Mars Hill, they might look at it and say, we're pretty dang smart. We, we, we have all this great logic. We, you know, if anybody deserves deity-ness, it would be us because we're so smart. And he's saying, no, you never knew me. And, and more importantly, I don't even know you. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, those versions would have liked to somehow be able to help. But sometimes it's a little bit hard to help somebody who thinks they already know. And think they're fine, right? They think they're fine and you're trying to say, uh, well, I'd like to help. It's like, well, that's fine. I'm smart. I don't need I really don't need that help. So am I right in thinking that on the ten virgins, There's the scary part. The, the, the scary part is what Neil Maxwell calls the awful arithmetic. And the fact that Joseph Smith said the ten virgins is the church. Us, Latter-day Saints. Ouch. That there are going to be a number of people that have believed that they're ready to go in and they're not ready to go in. The, the things have not, they haven't taken care of the things that they need to take care of. Yeah. There you go. Was it, was it down praying, you know, I'm going to hold off for a while, then I'm going to pray day and night and try and make up for all of this at the last minute kind of thing. I, I'm going to forsake the, the life that I was supposed to live and try and do it at the end. Yeah, here and then here. A lot of followers, yeah. No. 
Well, it's funny you should say that because I've looked at, at people like uh, the Olsteins and Billy Graham's and those kind of guys. And they do great work. Now, and, and only the Lord knows their heart. The question would be when they get when they get to the other side, the Lord would know whether how much of this was them honestly believing because there are a lot of people that have come to Christ through their efforts. And I think in some cases a lot of these preachers are really, really good people and I don't think it will take them long to accept the gospel on the other side. Probably won't accept it here. but And then some for whom they would know whether this was about power and control and something like that. Yeah. Yeah, right. And then I heard up the Reddit And you know, and sometimes we wonder, gee, why doesn't the Lord tell us more clearly exactly when he's coming? <laughs> really? For how many of us do we know what time sacrament meeting starts? And what time the sacrament begins, and we're timing it so that we're there like eight minutes after, because we we've, we've been holding off getting ready. Oh, church starts in ten minutes. I guess I'll start getting ready. I can see why it is that he doesn't tell us when the second coming is coming because we would delay. Okay. All right. Let me read. Uh, let me finish this with Neil Maxwell, and then and then we will be done. I realize we jumped around a lot, but the the preachings of Paul just open up uh, a. All of these great teachings in there. And, and the one on Mars Hill is just fabulous. Okay, Neil Maxwell. There are few, why are there a few members who, are somewhat, who somewhat resemble the ancient Athenians? So eager to hear some new doubt and criticism. <laughs> just as some weak members slip across the state line to gamble, there are few go out of their way to have their doubts titillated Instead of nourishing their faith, they are gambling offshore with their fragile faith. <laughs> to the question, will ye also go away? These few would reply, oh no, we merely want a weekend pass to go to a casino for critics or a clubhouse for cloak holders. Such are easily diverted members are not disciples, but fair-weather <laughs> followers. There's the challenge. I think on a regular basis, the question is, uh, do we delay uh, doing the things that we need to do to build up our oil? Or do we sometimes, and it's easy to, it's easy to do for a lot of us to sit in church and we'll hear a talk talking about what needs to happen and we'll say, well, I wish so-and-so were here. They really need to hear this one. Or, that, well, too bad, they, they, this, I know who they're really talking to. And we're not as fast to go, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? This, this, it would be important that we not ignorantly worship this great God. But we need to understand who He is. So that we can build up that, so that when the, when the bridegroom comes, that we're ready to walk in and not be surprised. I pray that we can do that. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Our dear Father in heaven, we're grateful for this beautiful day. We're thankful for our safety and for the warmth 
beautiful chapel that we can read in. We're grateful for each other and for the strength that we bless each other's lives with. We're so thankful for our Savior and His constant compassion and love for us and encouragement and helping us become, become better and become more like Him. We pray for that Spirit to please guide us this day, strengthen us in all that we need to do, and help us to face our challenges with courage and hope. And we feel this name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Thank you.